G'day everyone and welcome to another Bloody Movie Podcast. Back on the internet, on the airwaves of the internet in 2020. It's a brand new decade and I'm back with, you know him, you love him. He's basically the co-host of this show, even though he hasn't really earned that title. What am I talking about? He absolutely has. Eric Tush is back with us. Yep, here I am, here again. And we're doing a huge review episode today, covering everything from Uncut Gems, this true history of the Kelly Gang, The Lighthouse, For Sama, Color Out of Space, Peanut Butter Falcon, and just quickly touching on what were some of our favourite films of 2019. But first of all, Eric, how are you feeling this new year? How, what, how, what did you feel about last year in film? Oh, I thought last year was relatively fine, although... I didn't really have uh, an opportunity to watch as many films as I would have wanted. I only was able to see two things at MIF. So I had a pretty busy year last year, but I'm looking at catching up with a lot of other things. Yes, and we've caught up, uh, actually, pretty much all of these films are 2019 films that, that played at festivals, but then also like played at you know other things, but then they're getting releases in early 2020. A lot of these mm. films are actually coming out this week. Yeah. Uh, but before we get to one of those films, uh, we'll start with one of the big releases that dropped on Netflix and came out in the US uh, over Christmas time, and that is the new film from the Safety Brothers, Uncut Gems. Yeah, well, good old un- good old Safety Brothers. Now uh, this, yeah, sorry. Oh well, um, I'd say that I think that they they've done it again, making a another great film. Although uh, it's interesting. Um, Looking at something like uh, Uncut Gems, especially after the success after Good Time, that they seem to have built a strange cult following or sort of a, a hype group or a fan base. Yep. So some people sort of look at Uncut Gems as being sort of a, a decade masterpiece. In it, some... It's not. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I... I'd agree with you there. I, I still think it's very good, though. Overall, I prefer Good Time for mm. probably a multitude of reasons. One, I just think that the... I think that the way that Good Time was able to do that, and I think the the the, the fact that it play, plays out over twenty four hours mm. is much to the film's benefit, and like really amps up the tension and really like I think makes the stakes a bit higher. Mm. I think in that film, and, but it's also like much. It has higher stakes, but it's much smaller scale. If that makes sense, mm. I also just think Pattinson has a lot more range than Sandler does in this film. But I still think Sandler's good in this film. But I think Pattinson's performance is above and beyond Sandler's in this film. I think uh, Pattinson would show more range because I guess he goes through more emotions. Sandler, for the most part, seems... Because uh, I, I see him as this, this highly deluded character. Even when things are going mm. terribly wrong, he still sort of like pushes through them, sort of ignores the uh, the danger of these like scenarios or sort of the threat that um, they, they sort of uh, evoke... Uh, sort of just like breezes past him and there's only like some times where he cracks there's the there's the one time uh when he, in his office where he, where he sort of uh, breaks down which happens later on in the film other than that he sort of does seem a uh, somewhat one note but i but i think cat from a character point of view it works well for the character because it really it really does uh show uh just just how far from reality is fallen mm-hmm. I mean, we should probably stop comparing it to Good Time because I think that's kind of it's a bit unfair, but it's not not it's unfair, but like not out of. I wouldn't say unfair because they're both they're, they're f- especially with the characters of mm. uh, Connie Nikas, who was Robert Pattinson's character in Good Time, and Howard Ratner, played by Adam Sandler in this film. They both have, I think, similar journeys yeah. in terms of that. But as you were saying, like uh, Ratner is more like delusional, whereas I think I find that. Um, that Pattinson's character is much more desperate. Yeah. And a lot of this, like, there's a lot of just, like, 
insane hyperbole around this film saying it's a two it's a two hour and 15 minute anxiety attack i think there is no. way too much downtime in this film for that to even be considered i think as i mentioned like before when we were talking about um uncut gems before recording this uh, i didn't i didn't i didn't find the film to be very tense well i wouldn't say it wasn't tense, but not tense in the, in, in the sense that it was just like a thriller. Mm. Because people talk about the film as if it was a thriller, and I find it kind of strange. I think the film works at its best when you sort of view it at a more removed, uh, sort of, instead of imprinting yourself on the character, you're watching it from uh, from a faraway vantage point, and you can and sort of see these uh, these scenarios unfold, and sort of, sort of see... Uh, how much further this um, Adam Sandler's character sort of falls in his uh, his delusion, just just to see how like the threat just becomes increasingly more uh, visceral, uh, while he he sort of remains sort of stable. He's still trying to he's still playing his like strange ploys while also trying to make himself successful with his like get rich quick schemes, like with the match with the somewhat max fi- uh, match fixing that he was doing in the film. Um, which isn't isn't really match fixing, but um, hmm. somewhat kind yeah. of is. It's a stra- It's strange that t- Kevin Garnett, um, a- a former Boston Celtics player, or I think current probably still. I don't follow basketball. Someone please mm. correct me. But uh, yeah, for him to be in this film, I think he's actually a, pre- a pretty decent actor in this film. I think too. he's yeah. quite good in the film. He's quite good. But just back to what you were saying about um, like these these this tension or what mm. you think is a bit strange to be described as tension. I think a lot of that works in the scenes that are so much more low key. Mm. Like when the gem is like the scene at the auction when the gem has gone up for sale and like yeah. the prices like decrease da- drastically or like just the entire final scene where it's just, you know, yeah. like all riding on this one basketball game and you're literally just watching Adam Sandler watch a basketball game. But- when it's a lot more low key, I think that's when the tension actually really is really good. But in these scenes where it's just like I find a lot of this film mistakes high tension for a bunch of characters screaming at each other i I don't think um i think a lot of people just sort of take that as the film trying to build tension or or sort of like friction between characters i sort of just see that as just sort of um being like a byproduct of just how the character behaves uh sort of like um his family sort of growing apart from him because he's he's just he's just a prick to them he's got (laughs) um but it's strange that um, the Safties are able to make characters. I haven't seen uh, Daddy Longlegs or Heaven Knows What or any of their other short films, but I'm assuming ma- maybe they have something similar. But they have a character that is really, really distinguishably like irredeemable and unlikable, but they have this strange magnetism towards them mm. and you want them to succeed. And I think that's that's what really came through in Good Time and I think it comes through here in Uncut Gems as well. Yeah, no, I, th- I would agree with you on that. Definitely. Yeah, but I've cut you, I, again, I, I keep cutting you off with this thing. We've been doing this podcast for almost three years now, <laughs> and I haven't learned how to cut you off, but you were saying something beforehand. Oh, I think um, I was just going to sort of, con- I was going to add on to how uh, you described the, the points that you thought were the most tense parts. The funny thing is when, when you're talking about like the, the tension with watching the uh, basketball gameplay, what, what else is funny is that there's another layer of tension while that's happening where... Uh, 
some criminals, some thugs are trying to break into Adam Sandler's shop and he's sort of oblivious to mm. to one threat. And there's also the thing with, I think, it that at, uh, is it Julia Fox's character goes to like that casino in Atlantic City and like the, yeah. those guys' goons are after her yeah. too, ad- adding that extra layer, which apparently I read that that scene was com- a complete reshoot. That was done after pr- after the production. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, going going back to that that particular scene, um, you can see you can see a tense scenario. Although just the characters like disregard for for one channel of tension, that being like some criminals trying to break into his store and attack him, uh, versus him watching a basketball game unfold because he put a huge gamble on it, um, is, is which I find is rather humorous. I don't I don't see why I could see people. Um, feeling anxiety for the character um but I, I don't i think that it's just because of how ridiculous the scenario is it's more uh, enjoyable to just like look back and or look away um and sort of just laugh at how how absurd this this scenario is this person seems to care more about his his earnings than his his own life <laughs> and uh with the end of the film you sort of see how that pays off not going to spoil that. I think it, it's the. I think it's probably the only way the film could have ended, and it executes oh, it pretty it's, perfectly. It's, yeah, it it couldn't end any other way. I think otherwise, it just it would make everything else seem meaningless. Mm. Now, this a big contention of this because this um, international the international distributor for this is Netflix, and it's an A twenty four, I believe, an A twenty four production, mm. and also they distribute it in the US. Do you feel and that, and that was a big contention issue, especially since here in Australia, especially when there are like a lot of Netflix's other like awards contenders, like The Irishman, Marriage Story, The Two Popes, The King, they were all getting limited cinematic releases, and Uncut Gems didn't. Mm. How do you do? You feel like that this film? Were you okay with watching this at home at net on Netflix, or would you have been? Would you have preferred to see this on the big screen? I think um, I don't know. It's yeah. It's an interesting one because I, I I was thinking like I I definitely want to see this on a cinema because seeing seeing Good Time at the cinema was a really really great experience mm. but then also like watching this but I think the reason why Good Time I prefer watching Good Time in a cinema and like this not as much I'm really not making much sense here but I'll try I'll try to is that I found that even with the the Safdie's like I guess signature style I found it not necessarily lacking here but just like. A little bit less, uh, at, like yeah. a, a bit less present than it was in Good Time, like especially with a lot of these intense close-ups that Good Time had. Now that I thought about it a bit more, I'd probably say I'd, something like Good Time, uh, not Good Time, sorry, Uncut Gems. I'd like to watch in cinemas, although I think just sort of the way that it's presented, it could work fine just watching it in your house because, yeah, totally agree. Like the um, just sort of the 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 film style is a little bit more. Uh, it's less present than it is in Good Time. It's a it's a little bit more in some instances more conventionally shot. Um, it's it's funny. I had a friend that said like, "Oh, Good Time is like it's, it's a really good film," but it, but they thought that the film looked ugly. <laughs> I wouldn't say that it looks um, ugly, I but think it doesn't it's purposefully to look. I ugly. think it's, it's purposefully trying to be this, this grimy sort of underground sort yeah. of feel to it, which I think they try to capture in Uncut Gems, but then that's also at odds with like you know this really really like flashy world of uh, of like you know like high-end jewelry and i i i like i think the way that it looks complements sort of the 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 tone of the film where it's sort of it it feels a lot more as you said like grounded and like seedy um there's a lot of like uh blue bluish lighting like everything seems like really like sterile it doesn't have like the weird sort of psychedelic 
uh, sort of look of um, or color palette of good time. Mm. Uh, Until you get to the club where the weekend is. Yeah, I guess uh, with the exception of like when they go to to, to nightclubs and mm. that's uh, when things are you've got more variety in the lighting. But uh, also the 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 camera work or the handling the camera work uh, it seems to be a lot more rough. And it's and, and I sort of get the impression that they 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 might have wanted to make it seem a bit like um sort of those like American reality shows that are filmed in porn shops and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I get I, I get a like a huge impression from that, but it's it's a lot, but it's a but a lot of the camera movements are done with uh with a bit more finesse when they're sort of switching between uh two uh, points of uh, interest. Like they'll be tracking a character, and then they might uh, swerve the camera over to um, a character in um, who's uh, working in a store. Um, I could remember that there was a character that quit early in the film, and they do a maneuver like that to sort of show him working in another. Yeah, That's how they, yeah. yeah. Later in the film, and it's, and it's sort of like again, sort of showing like uh, the consequences of just uh, Adam Adam Sandler's like careless sort of uh, he's like reckless abandon really. Mm. But now that you've mentioned that, something I want to see on like uh, in the special features of like the good of, of the um, uncut gems Blu-ray is like a fake thirty-minute-long episode of a porn stars esque yeah. show within Howard Ratner's jewelry shop. That I want to see, and oh. then it's Kevin Garnett <laughs> coming in, and he's like, and then there's like documentary crews, like you know, just following him around. I want that. I desperately want this now. Safety Brothers, if you're listening, that, please that'd probably go be a back funny and short. do this. I think they released. They made a short after. Yeah. Oh, I really want to watch that. that. I haven't watched. It. Is it Goldman versus Silverman? It's yeah. about like two like Times Square like uh, uh, stat. The guys that pretend to be statues. Yeah. I think it's like seven minutes long. I really want to catch that. Yeah, I, 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 I want to watch that too. I think it looked pretty funny. It'd probably be a lot better than um, what was it? What did Jack do? Which I couldn't stand two minutes of that. <laughs> uh, what did Jack do? Is funny, man. You should have seen it through. For the Lynch fan that you are, for the oh, I'm you not much of a Lynch fan. <laughs> anyway, but Uncut Gems it, for international listeners is a, of, is available to stream now on Netflix, and if you're in the US, it's been out in cinemas for a while, and it'll be out on Blu-ray soon. So you've probably already seen it, but if you haven't, go check it out. It's not not as good as it's not as good as Good Time, but it was a good time. I kind of like it better. Uh, I'll than see myself good time, out now. but um, I wouldn't say. I, I think it's much, much better than Good Time. I kind of like that they're sort of on equal footing for me, but I sort of like uh, Uncut Gems a little more just because um, I, f- I found the film to be a bit more ambitious and sort of it starts in like crisis mode and it seems to just carry that along like the whole way through. And I also did find um, Sandler's character, at least the, the way that they sort of um, handled him to be a bit more um, interesting. Uh, although... With the way that um, Good Time was uh, structured, they they were sort of limited in sort of how much they could uh, express with the, through the yeah. character. With its sort of uh, it's uh, it taking place over a day and everything yeah, like lose, that. You lose track of time of like how long it actually is. You're like, okay, well, mm. you, you think like almost a week has passed, but it's only been like a couple of days, and it's you, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I just time, don't think it's not as tight as Good Time. Yeah. Let's just say. That. I mean, t- with uh, I mean with Good Time, it seemed that the, the the time was important to maintain urgency, uh, like a this momentum of uh, sort of tension throughout the whole film, while like uh, Uncut Gems seems to be like jumping all over the place because it's got more characters that they sort of uh, that they that, that they sometimes track. Good Time mainly seemed to be just focusing on on um. 
uh, Robert Patterson's yeah. character. So, yeah. Yeah, much more contained. Well, there, that is Uncut Gems. As I said, it's out on Netflix right now. Go watch it. Okay, the next film we're talking about is True History of the Kelly Gang. Mm. Now, this is a fascinating film, oh, I found. Most, most definitely. Yeah, so for everyone in Australia knows who Ned Kelly is, but I've found through this film and through talking about it that not a lot of people internationally really know about the story of Ned Kelly. I wouldn't be too surprised because um, even like uh, Australia's history of like bush rangers, mm. they really only focus on Ed Kelly. He's the only real memorable one, even though there were quite a few bush rangers. Then again, we don't seem to like idolize the uh, bush rangers as much as like Americans sort of idolize their um, what are they like? Yeah, uh, they're, like they're, they're outlaws. They're, yeah. outlaws like yeah. they're, they're Jesse Jameses and they're Billy yeah. the Kids and Wild Bill Hickox and all those yeah. those types. But this film. For, but there, but Ned Kelly is still very much idolised by a bunch of people here in Australia. Oh yeah, and this film is the most is the biggest, most satisfying middle finger to every single one of those fuckheads that has a such his life tattoo. Like because this film, fascinatingly, through a fictional retelling of Ned Kelly, one designed not to, as a provocation, but also in a way that explores some really really interesting things about you know, the mythology of Ned Kelly and just like this really fucked up Australian ideal of masculinity. And I think this film does it really, in a really stunning, really great way. I would agree that I, that I think the film does seem to address a lot of uh, issues or d- decides to juggle a lot of themes. Although I don't think, I think the film kind of buys, bites off a bit more than it can chew at times. At times it seems to handle some of these things very well and sometimes not so well in other parts. But I think it's a bit, when you're doing a lot at once, it's a bit difficult to sort of like maintain a good spread. Um, overall, I like the film quite a bit. Um, the The biggest the biggest thing that I seem to like about the film was how much, uh, uh, when people describe it as transgressive, I, I, I do agree with them a lot um, in the way that... Uh, uh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of the ways, as I was saying of this film, as like as almost as a purposeful provocation, but it's not only just as like not a juvenile sort of thing. It's like, oh, look, we did this. Like It does seem a little... That. But I, I feel like it's in service of a much higher point. I, I think it's a bit more juvenile than trying to serve a high... I don't know, it's weird talking about this. Because well, like... We should just say, list some of the things that happen in this film that are really pissing off a lot of people, mm. a lot of conservative people, and just like the 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 fault the the most blatant falsehoods that are in this film. So like, it's very okay. One of them, Ned has a very overtly homoerotic relationship with other bush ranger Joe Byrne in this mm. film, who kind of also acts like his conscience for a, like a majority of this film too. Yeah, I guess you can say in a sense. So he seems to be like a, a character that he can actually. Um console with like a confidant uh, Kelly doesn't seem to have a sort of a steady person he could sort of rely on or yeah, sort of like ev- express emotion to yeah pretty and he's like the only real one because everyone else mm. around him is pretty fucked up because yeah. like you have a look at some of the characters in here like Essie Davis who I think is absolutely brilliant in mm. this film playing his mother like is like kind of the catalyst for drilling in this really, yeah. really fucked up idea of masculinity. I, I really, like, you know, you're my little man. You have to. Yeah, yeah she's playing an Irish. I sort of like. 
one thing that I do think that I do think kind of works quite well is sort of how the film is very uh, anachronistic in the sense that it's funny because um, some people I think these must have been like Americans when I was like talking to them. Uh, they, they they said like they were sort of like questioning like uh, the validity of the although they were talking about the film as it being like a period piece and I'm like oh, it's not a damn I mean it's a period piece but this yeah. anachronism is littered throughout well, the whole damn yeah. film like a uh, and a uh, part part of the reason why it looks like this is they're trying to sort of simulate uh, sort of like an Australian household scenario with uh, with this like really dis- dysfunctional family with like the like the um, uh, like the mother doing sort of like sex work and stuff like this really weird sort of seedy uh, relationship going on tackling a lot of things and like as as we were saying about all these characters who are just like real and someone else who I think is fantastic in this film is Nicholas Holt best performance next to the favorite because mm. he plays pretty much like the the police constable that is pretty much oppressing or just or well, he's he's sort of he's taking advantage of his position yeah he, he's got he's basically got his yeah taking advantage mm. of his position as the constable of the police captain mm. of the of the constable of the victor of at the victoria Con- <laughs> you can tell we haven't done a podcast in fucking five months, can't you? Yeah. <laughs> but no, Nicholas Holt is fantastic in this film. Like, there's a scene in this. There's a scene in this where he has a he points a gun to a baby in in the form of like as a ter- as an interrogation yeah. to try and get an answer out of um, Thomas and Mackenzie's character. Mm. And then the other police walk in on what he what he's doing, and it's a it's a moment that is both really really fucking terrifying, but also. A great piece of dark comedy. Yeah. Because the baby starts crying. He's like, stop. Nope. Not now. Not now. Yeah. The other police come in. Is like, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, I was conducting an interview. I do like that the film does sort of like carry, carry like a somewhat unique sort of Australian sense of like, sort of, I don't know, dark humour um, in some parts where it's like, uh, there's there's that scene where they find a, a man, <laughs> there's a man tied to a tree and he's got his testicles in his mouth. Yeah, and the, the, the thing is, <laughs> like, the, he took a man's livelihood, so we yeah, took his manhood. His manhood. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. What's um, what's what's uh, one thing that sort of bothers me with the film is that the first half sort of seems to follow sort of more of a, like a sort of like a traditional narrative arc, I think, um, where um, this is like uh, from the beginning to the point. Where he um, Harry Powell takes Kelly under his wing, and they they go over to a hotel um, so Ned could go kill uh, a police constable that's been harassing his family. That's right, yeah, played by Charlie Hunnam. So, but uh, when he when he gets jailed, it's the film seems to sort of uh, become more anarchic with the with the yeah. way it sort of handles the character and sort of sort of uh, jumping from location and time. I I do kind of agree with you in like that big jump. It does skip a lot of things. It does, it does leave a big sort of gap of like what it, but I also think it adds to sort of like what happened. Like he's basically had an entire like adolescence of incarceration. Like what has that done to him? And then the next thing you see of him, he's fucking bare knuckle boxing Mm. with like, with a bunch of like British people cheering him on. But also just like getting on that, I think George McKay also in this film is absolutely fucking outstanding. Oh, I think he's the best actor in the fil- in the film. Easy. I think him and Davis are tied. I think Essie mm. Davis is also really great in this film. But I, I thought just, Crow was was, was Crow, fine. I think as well. everyone in yeah, this film. I think is everyone's really great. pretty good. The acting's quite great over all all over the board. Yeah, but just especially with George McKay in the fact that he is by design 
pretty much the exact opposite of what Ned Kelly is. Not only him by the appearance with, you know, you know, Ned Kelly was like this really stocky dude with yeah. like a big bushy beard. And here you've got clean shaven, bug eyed George McKay mm. with this fucking, who's a fucking, what? Six foot, stick. six foot six <laughs> bean pole, George McKay. <laughs> and then, yeah, he, he, I mean, he is kind of made to look like someone who would idolize Ned Kelly. And every mm. single, like, in all of his acts and things He does like that, have a mullet at some point. Yeah, he has, like, a really tiny little yeah. baby mullet, essentially. And he basically... Every ounce of, like, kind of bravery or heroism is, like, completely stripped away. Like, when they finally get to, like, the climactic fight... The, when they get to the shootout at the Glen Rowan Inn, when they mm. have that big showdown with the police, it's not like this heroic standoff, and they don't go out in a blaze of glory. It's kind... And it's a credit to... Both Justin Cazell and the um and the cinematographer Ari Weg- Weg- Wegner, I believe, they just turn it into like this hallucinatory nightmare, like full of strobes and just like mm. blood everywhere. And it also has the best use of a change in aspect ratio I think I've seen since First Man. It's yeah. bloody outstanding. Yeah, um, I do like that they that um as you said they they seem to sort of do a bit of an inverse, or maybe not so much an inverse, but they sort of seem to sort of flesh out Ned. And sort of go against like this uh, the mythological perception of Ned Kelly being like, I guess this. Uh, I don't know if they if people would see him as stoic, this, but they, like, they, this, like, like this political vigilante of yeah, sorts. He's like this good Robin Hood type vigilante that's a real yeah. tough, seemed like a real tough guy. Nothing yeah. could break him. Even him going to jail supposedly couldn't break him. Like I could remember. Yeah. Um, he's just this fucking aggressive loose cannon that is. Really, especially I think with he's he, but he's still that scared little boy like deep inside that the youngster, um, uh, Orlando Schwert, who plays the young Ned Kelly in this film, who captures that brilliantly. Like, it's still mm. you can see the parallels between the two performances, but as well as the vast differences, mm. which I think is you know, credit to the screenwriting and also the performances of both actors. I think one benefit of character of making uh, Ned sort of uh, more, I wouldn't say like. I think as I mentioned before, like they seem to flesh him out more, make him more human. They the, sort of showing him sort of jump from being like courageous, um, him like uh, sort of like doing his bare knuckle boxing um, to him sort of having like a moral standing. He doesn't want to ever kill anyone. Um, and then like him sort of, uh, there's at, at points where he's like uh, freaking out at the shootout or there was a, in, in, even before that, uh, I think he sort of had an attraction to a teacher who was trying to teach him how to, to write. And, he's, and, he, and, and he sort of lets him go on sort of based off this like emotion, sort of seems to sort of uh, capture this like, sh- maybe for this point in time where uh, I guess like the idea, the perception of masculinity is sort of being redrawn. So we're sort of mm-hmm. having like a bit of this, this old stuff uh, seems to like these old elements of uh, masculinity sort of some of that sticking with um, with Kelly whilst he's sort of embracing these like newer is he's, he's being more vulnerable he's also like wearing a dress as well yeah um, the, the, the Kelly the Ke- yeah the Kelly gangs apparently this is like uh, Peter Carey who wrote the novel uh, through history of the Kelly gang mm. the fact that the Kelly gang and the sons of Steve wore dresses because as they say in the film as um, Dan Dan Kelly played yeah. by um, Nick Cave's son Earl by the way. Oh really? Yeah. Cool. Um, he says nothing scares a man like crazy. Yeah. And it's this idea, and I believe it's very loosely based on what Irish gangs used to do. Like, like mm. the, 
Yeah. Of, oh, really? Yeah. Like a couple, like this one Irish gang, very, very loosely based on this. Like the Sons of Steve aren't real. They're yeah. just, it's a... No, that's thing. made up. And uh, I think another thing you have to mention, like the the, the name True History of the Kelly Games is a, is a bit of a joke, yeah. uh, a bit of a play on sort of like these kinds of uh, biopic uh, films. It's, it's sort of a, uh, carrying that through from the book, which is... Um, like a complete fictional, not a complete, but a, a grand fictionalization of like the history of Ned Kelly, and it's and it's um, it, it has it sort of like plays with uh, true events and and things that like didn't happen at all. Um, something uh, something that the director for uh, history of the Kelly Gang uh, film does really well, sort of take advantage of that and com- does uh, what he completely wants. It doesn't seem to have. Uh, feel like he has an obligation to sort of keep like the truth of the film which is mm. which if if you're going in uh thinking that that's like a priority of the film you'd be deeply disappointed yeah absolutely well the, the the first line the first text you see in the film literally says nothing you are about to see is true <laughs> and then every word except true fades off the screen and then the rest of the title comes up as if you yeah. didn't need to as if you didn't get the point of the film but anyway yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about this film while I try and think of what it was? Oh, I can keep going. I was sort of going to add on a bit more and sort of mention, like, uh, what's interesting with the ending of the film, which is sort of um, still a bit loosely based on the ending of the book, Mm. is that, uh, uh, well, with the book, Ned Kelly is sort of writing passages to Mm. give to his daughter. Uh, that doesn't really happen in the film. There's a point where they make reference to that, where, um, a te- as I mentioned before, there's, uh, Kelly comes across an English teacher and he's uh, helping him with, uh, with, with writing. I think it was Harry Powell that um, suggested that he should uh, write his yeah, own write his own. He said, he said, he said a man should be the author of his own history. Yeah. Never. He also says, never leave the English to write it. They'll fuck it up and steal the proceeds. Yeah. I think that the, the the film seems to have a lot of like jabs at sort of a um, a person like sort of crafting their own way yeah. through the world, and then sort of and like the the world trying to make sense of that person's yeah. journey. In and post. then also like how things change along the way and how perception of it's mm. changed. There's also a line within that narration of him writing his novel where he said, "A myth is more profitable than a man." Mm. And at, in the case of this film, it's absolutely true, especially mm. with some of the things. Like how this film presents some of the most famous aspects of Kelly, they're mm. either Kelly doesn't do it at all, or they're just completely absent mm. from the film, which I think is a fascinating way to look at it. It is just like, just completely like fits this whole film's theme of like challenging perceptions of history and about the subjectivity of history, mm. and doing that through fiction. I think is just fascinating, and like I've been thinking about this film. Ever since I saw it almost a month ago, it's it's good that you bring up like the subjectivity of history because they there's a there's a lot going on with uh, legacy in the film about how one wants to be remembered after they die, yep. and of course when they're dead they have no control over their their legacy, um, which is uh, which is great when you have this juxtaposition of like the film depicting a, a more like human vulnerable um, uh, Ned Kelly versus sort of our current uh, uh, mythalized uh, this this great Robin Hood-esque hero who was, uh, like, an unbreakable man. Like, uh, yeah. when they um, make uh, mention to, like, the... Uh, what was it? The Eureka Stockade and oh, things like that. Oh, I was thinking more like that that um, impenetrable uh, barge, Oh, the monitor. The monitor. Uh, where they would, like, they would sort of, like... 
look at um like Ned Kelly and say like oh that man the, he was like a man made out of mm. cast iron where um that's really just a guise in the film and underneath the guise you have like a, a vulnerable yeah, scared vulnerable. kid who doesn't know he doesn't know what the hell's just going on around him just like in this world of chaos and he's got a, he has a mind of chaos as well mm. it is an absolutely fascinating film and I hope you got you guys should all definitely go watch mm. it uh, Australian Australian listeners this is now streaming on Stan so go go ahead and watch that if you don't have Stan get the 30 day free trial and watch this mm. uh, for international listeners I believe it is getting a cinema release in the UK from February 28th and I believe in the US through IFC films it is getting a release in a, on April 24th so make sure you look out for true history of the Kelly gang it's an er- early contender for probably uh, it, it's going to be hard for this film to top this mm. year, I mean, it. I say that now, obviously, but it's only February. It's the start of February. Well, it's a good start. I it think. is an amazing start for this for the new decade. Yeah, as it is. And next up, we've got another big film that has taken its time. Like Uncut Gems coming to Netflix took its time to get here, but yeah. this film has really, really taken its time to get here. It first came out in the US back in October, and now in February, Australia finally gets it. It is the new film from Robert Eggers, The Lighthouse, starring. Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson as lighthouse keepers on an island in the middle of in New England somewhere in the 1890s. Eric, what did you think of the lighthouse? Well, uh, this might sound weird, but I thought that the lighthouse is probably the funniest film I saw last year. <laughs> Look, I, I can definitely, I can definitely get that. The farts got mm. here, didn't they? Oh, it's not just the farts; it's just everything, really. I mean, it's like. It's weird because sometimes uh, when, when I'm watching like a horror film and um, I sort of, because I watch, I like, I like, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Evil Dead. I like a good horror comedy. Um, something like The Lighthouse seems to be, I think that they, they, they try to play it straight or at least the characters play everything straight. But I think the filmmaking is so, so, yeah, so, so, so to make it like seem. The, situ- the situation yeah, as well. They make, like- they make humor out of the scenarios. Um, yeah, in this case, I think it's more so intentional than like unintentional in the case of like maybe Ari Aster's films. Yeah. Like, uh, I think like we've, we've, uh, we've mentioned before, like some things that he does are just like, I don't know, some decisions he makes are very strange and they sort of make the film a bit, I don't know, humorous unintentionally. Yep. Um, I don't think that's the case for The Lighthouse, I think. No, it, I think the humor is very intentional. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the scripted farts, yeah, uh, I, um, with, with evidence of that, like I think, yeah, de- he definitely had humor on his mind. How do you think the How do you think the farts were written into the script? Were they just like Willem Dafoe farts, or do you think it was the onomatopoeic sound where it was just B B B B B, nah, and then a bunch of P's? I think I think it would have just ha- would have just had like a little line, or it might have just like had in like brackets like farts, <laughs> like after like a line. If it's like a fart during dialogue, you just yeah. have the dialogue, and then you have an indention fart. <laughs> but this film is more than just farting because you know mm. our Pat's jerks off at one point too. Oh yeah, it's a um, yeah. You'd have people like saying that's like a, a bit of a. They would be making like jokes uh, to like hentai, <laughs> with it's like a weird sort of a eroticization of um, uh, what's it, like a like a mermaid. Yeah, um, the sirens. Yeah, and, and then there's like uh, what's his name, uh, Willem Dafoe. At one point, he. Uh, He's he's up in the li- he's up well. in the lighthouse tower and like yeah. Robert Pattinson follows him up there and he sees like an octopus tentacle up there yeah really strange and then there's a there's a point where there's like an hallucinatory point where um Robert Pattinson is like a 
he's, he's holding him to the ground and then like the sort of there's a cutaway where um, I don't know if it, if it was a cutaway, but there's a there's a cut back in in um, uh, Willem Dafoe's just like covered in all these like tentacles and shells yeah, and stuff yeah, to make yeah, himself yeah. look like he's like Poseidon or something like that. Mm, definitely. <laughs> but we've talked about all the funny aspects of this film, but this film is first and foremost, I wouldn't necessarily call it a horror film. Nah. Nah, this is more, I wouldn't even really call it a thriller it's a either. More it's a dramatic, drama. Really. It's a much more of a drama. Yeah. It's like a chamber drama of these two guys that they slowly get to know who they are mm. on this, like the only two people on this island as their lighthouse keepers. And they just do like menial tasks around there. But then mm. like, Things start to happen. Um, Robert Pat, you find out who Robert Pattinson really is, and because they're all talking in, Robert Eggers seems to have a fascination with period accurate uh, dialogue. That it makes his films, it, it makes on- his films captivating, but also really, really difficult to understand what the hell's going on. And there was no subtitles at my screening, so unfortunately, not. when when is the lighthouse set? I know that it must be like the eighteen, like eighteen. 19- I think it's like eighteen ninety two or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, it's funny that you mentioned the period dialogue, because I think, like, um, Willem Dafoe's, like, uh, accent is it seems, sounds like something older than the time. Yeah, definitely. And I, I'm not sure, uh, and I, I, I'm thinking that that's sort of like an intentional choice, sort of. It seems like um, The Lighthouse seems to be making fun of a lot of, like, mythology or sort of, like, poetry that surrounds this, like... Uh, the sort of um, mariner type figure, like I'm um, thinking of stuff like Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, um, like just the way that like uh, Defoe talks, he sort of like seems to be like talking in some kind of like poetic yeah. verse. Especially where- there's that famous, there's the I think the now famous scene where I don't think he blinks throughout the entire thing, where it's it, where he yell, where it's the famous moment in the trailer where he goes ha. Yeah, and he has that massive spiel to yeah. Robert Pattinson, and he's like talking about like I, I think it's like about smi- like about Poseidon smiting yeah. him or, or, or something like that, and yeah. it's amazing acting from Willem Dafoe, who I think acts circles around Robert Pattinson in this film. Mm. But it, it's just it's as you were saying, it's just it's just it like it's really intense, but sort of the the how that sort of scenario ends it sort of just like dissolves with like Pattinson being like oh, okay I like your yeah. damn cooking like <laughs> yeah. like see that that when you when, when you have like a lot of like scenes like like that in the film and there's also like a weird domesticity be- between the the two like some say that there's like quite a bit of like home or like a light homoeroticism yeah in the I whole can see film that, yeah. I could sort of see that because they both seem like highly like sexually repressed um mm. or, or or like a uh, What's the word? Um, well, I mean, like Pattinson was like jerking off yeah. to like a little mermaid, a little mermaid like mermaid carving. Doll, yeah. um, but it, it's funny because uh, um, Defoe seems to be like sort of like a, what you'd see think of as like a household um, pa- uh, patriarch uh, for like um, like the old nuclear family, and he's just like ordering Pattinson around like as if he was like the housewife because yeah. he's getting to do all the cleaning work while he just like sits sits and watches the the light all the time yeah well here's the thing what i think of the film i think it's kind of a film not necessarily in two parts but it's a film that works in two different ways like i think it's mostly Mm. that like it's as it's kind of like this domestic drama Mm. for like 90 minutes of the film and then for the first two acts and then the third act 
that's when it actually starts to become like you know the mm. the the as the quote the beans are spilt yeah. and like things actually start to set in motion or they're not set in motion but things actually start, start to, to really unravel. start to unravel and then that's when that's when like the the intense sort of chamber drama like this like slow descent into madness in like a, a mm. in, in an isolated space that's when it really started to hit me and it just didn't for the first for the first little bit, which I don't know if that's intentional or not, because I found a, a lot of people I spoke to after the film said that they felt it the whole way through. And I, I wouldn't I say didn't. that I felt it the whole way. Through. I would say that, like, I kind of found, I kind of agree with you on that. It does seem to take its time. Um, I didn't mind how the, how it was though, leading up to the build up, because I found like the events to be very humorous and um, uh, just uh, on their own. Although, as I mentioned, like I find this to be more of a comedy than a horror film, which is why yeah. like that doesn't seem to bother me. But I do agree with you that I don't think it seems to build, uh, at least like the payoff that it has for the last act, the the build up beforehand, and doesn't seem to sort of add up um, as well. It does seem it does it sort of does go rather steady, and then it just blows up by the last yeah. act and goes absolutely nuts. Yeah, it does. But I kind <laughs> of like... A lot of time jumps as well. I don't... I I, 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 I still like... Um, I still like it. I just uh, I just think that... I do agree that it could be handled a little bit more uh, swiftly. Like that transition from the like the steady phase to the, the, the explosive phase. But back to what you were saying about like you think that um, Willem, Def- Willem Dafoe's accent in this movie and how you think it might be it, like might might be better suited in like a medieval film or something like that. Or maybe, not, maybe a, not even not medieval, medieval but, film, like, but like around around like probably like Egger's last film, The Witch. Like he'd be right at home in The Witch, probably. Yeah, probably. Like I'm thinking, like his accent at least sounds two or three centuries out of date. Yeah, compared to Pattinson and, and the dialogue as well, yeah, the yeah, vocabulary. Yeah. yeah, but compared to Pattinson, Pat- Pattinson, who just sounds like some drunk guy at Fenway Park, like <laughs> oh my, like it's this strange, like really fast and loose, like New England sort of accent, and it's really strange to hear coming out of Robert Pattinson. Yeah. I think the I think the the accents is fairly well. I I think, um, it, it's, it's funny when he pronounces like words like fart. He's like, "You're damn fart." Yeah, you're fart. You're fart. Ah <laughs> uh, no, Lighthouse. It's a very very strange film, but definitely worth seeing. Um, I prefer I prefer The Witch in terms of Robert, Robert Eggers' films, but I think again, the, 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 but like kind of like with. With good time and um, uncut mm. gems, I think it's it's kind of, I mean, it's it's probably more fair to compare these two though. I think I would unfair, agree. More unfair, I'll, I would actually say, because they're they're vastly yeah. different. Yeah, well, that's that's the funny thing when you have like two very different films. Um, I guess like in terms of content, uh, from a certain director, because they seem to carry over the style, like the like, the witches like in the same like aspect ratio. I'm pretty sure. Was was it was it in in four I by think three? This is a smaller one, I think. Oh, I think this it's is a bit, smaller I think it's one. Smaller, I can't but, remember yeah, exactly but what it's it still is, like but... you know boxier ra- ratios, working with like um like with the more boxy um, compositions and stuff. Um, I don't know. Like I'd I'd think that the witch in the lighthouse probably carry like a lot of similarities in the way that they would like arrange uh, shots. Uh, although, like the witch, I'd say that works as a proper horror film. I don't think The Witch the, works the, as a horror film, but I think it works as a comedy. The Lighthouse, you mean? But I, sorry, The Lighthouse. Yeah, I was going to say, The Witch works as a horror movie, The Witch absolutely. works as a horror film. Um, the Lighthouse works, I, th- I think, works as a co- comedy, but I think they're both very well-made films in their own rights. 
in their own respects, like um, Witch being the horror film, uh, Lighthouse being the, the comedy, or as I see it as a comedy. Yeah. What you you just mentioning the witch as well? That just reminded me about Doolittle in a really weird roundabout way, and I'll get to why. What we, we're not going to review Doolittle because <laughs> it's it's fucking Doolittle, and the, the what's there to Danny review? The Downey Jr. It's, one, yeah, the Downey Jr. Yeah. one. So Ralph Innocent, the actor who plays the dad in the witch, yeah, he is in Doolittle for like f- five minutes. Oh really? Yeah, and I'm like, this is a huge missed opportunity. Why isn't Black Philip talking to Doctor Doolittle? <laughs> Oh, yeah. what, where is that? I wanted that cameo. Even if he doesn't talk, I just wanted a black goat running around yeah. with Dr. Doolittle's crew. If you're going to have Ralph Innocent in there, that's fine. But yeah, you have to do it. You have to. What a, missed, that, that what a, a fucking missed opportunity. That would have been a funny jab, I think. Just a little mm. funny joke. Yeah, just asking Robert Downey Jr. if he, if he wants to live deliciously. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, that's Doolittle, and that was The Lighthouse as well. That's actually... The Lighthouse is in cinemas from February 6th all around Australia. Um, it's probably going to be in a very limited release. So, yeah. yeah, check your local cinema to see if they've got it. Next film we're talking about, also coming out on February 6th, this will be in a much smaller release than The Lighthouse probably, is the documentary that is nominated for Best Documentary at the Academy Awards this Sunday night, or Monday morning here in Australia, for Sama. Eric and I just watched the screener of this one. I saw this at MIFF, but my memory of this film was a bit hazy at MIFF because it was the third film in a five-film day that I saw at MIFF. This was the... I saw Weathering With You. I started with the Japanese animation Weathering With You. Then I saw the film Alice. Then Forsama. Then The Day Shall Come. And then Midnight Family. So that was a huge day for me for cinema-wise. And as you'd imagine... Did not, could not really remember much from it. I just remember it was incredibly visceral and impactful and really emotionally devastating. And on the second time around, it was even more so. Mm-hmm. What did you think, Eric? I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. It's... I, yeah, I really uh, enjoyed uh, Sama. Um, this is a documentary. The content is the content's shocking, of course. Yeah. I think it, it really well portrays this sort of like... Uh, the, the like the enduring nature of the human spirit where you have all these uh these um citizens of uh Alopo, what was the, Aleppo. the Aleppo they just uh sort of like uh hankering down and they're just just sort of waiting for this conflict to just end and pass through and they for and them to just resume not. and it just and it sort of it, it just never does it and just, it it gets so bad to the point where they all flee and, and it's like the most heartbreaking thing to them because because uh, they they just don't want to lose their homes. Yeah. Um. It's, it's like it's like the the city itself is like a part of them. Um. And it's and it's sort of it's devastating to see like the city just get destroyed and sort of that sort of parallel to their their spirit sort of slowly diminishing yeah, as well. Yeah. Slowly breaking down. We should also mention of how this film like the perspective that this film is shown through and it's through the director and like I guess the person that we mm. see who's the eyes and ears that through this film are uh, Wad Al Khatib who is a, I think she's a journalist yeah. over in, in Syria. And uh, she, basically the film is five years of her documenting what's this conflict, I believe since mm. from 2011 to 2016. Or maybe I think it's 2012 to 2017. 2012 to 2017 when the uprising in Syria was happening. And then like, mm. you know, there was the re- this new regime that came in. Then the Russians got involved and things got really violent and escalated to like really drastic and 
really, really cataclysmic, not, not cataclysmic, but disastrous effects, yeah. like, very, very quickly. I mean, it's, it's, it's strange, because, like, it seemed at the beginning that there was a, there was some kind of rebellion um, or coup mm. to sort of, like, throw out... That the filmmaker um, was heavily involved yeah. in, too, yeah. It seemed like they, they ended up, like, maybe it was, like, their nation getting uh, their... In, their uh, a new replacement government or their own independence uh, yeah. from a dictator or something along those lines for, um, I, th- I think they mentioned like Islamic uh, extremists, I don't know, stirring up trouble. I'm not, I'm not too sh- sure about what happened, like happened yeah. specifically. I really should yeah. read up more on it, but, it's, yeah. but from the sounds of it sounds like there was a, like a, um, it was either like, it's like Islamic uh, extremists ca- um, causing strife in the city, which may have caused, I don't know, uh, the country that call in like Russians to help um, expose of uh, get rid of them, or maybe there was a civil war that might have broke out as a result of that. It's not. Uh, I don't seem to give too much details uh, of what exactly was happening in the film because mm. that wasn't really the primary focus. No, it's the it's the lens of the it, it's it's mm. through the perspective of uh, Wad, and one of the things because she interviews this doctor who she soon has a relationship with and then, you know, eventually mm. marries and then they have a child during this entire conflict mm. named Sama, hence the name of the film yeah. being made for their daughter, Sama. Mm. And basically it's her... Like, and there's this voiceover she has at the beginning of the film saying, like, this... Like, we understand you must, like, really think ill of us to, you know, bring to bring you up in a world of yeah. chaos and war and all of this horrific stuff that's happening right now. Mm. And then she's basically like the this documentary is like justifying why like like yeah. why why we made the decisions that we made. And like so her and her husband Hamza, they create a ho- they make a hospital in Aleppo for all of these people to like this this mm. not private hospital but this hospital that they they, they make it's like a makeshift hospital. Yeah, the, a makeshift hospital. I think hospital. technically there were two hospitals, maybe even three because because they, they just kept getting bombed. Yeah, and I think what really what this film highlights most of the times is that it is incredibly confronting footage that they show, and it's mm-hmm. really, really does not hold back. But especially in in your in what this film shows anyway is that a lot of the people that are killed in these conflicts are children, mm. and I think especially when it, when especially as a new mother who is making this film, seeing mm. all of these children around, it makes it even more harrowing. Mm. Oh, most definitely, and it's uh, and it sort of just goes to show how like sort of the civilians just get caught in the crossfire of this warfare. Like, mm. like uh, it seems like at least who was in control of the country may have had like no uh, regard for their their health at all. I mean, um, they even uh, mention make mention of the um, the chlorine gas attacks, um, which is which is like crazy to, to to launch like a chemical attack on on your own country. Um. Yeah, yeah. As you said, it's 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 very harrowing stuff, and um, it doesn't really just doesn't hold back. So I probably wouldn't recommend this to anyone that's a bit squeamish. It doesn't sort of they can't really handle the sight of a genuine dead person on the screen because you you'd see a lot of dead bodies in the film. Yeah. You know, and and also a lot of like grieving as well, where it, it it's yeah. it just it's of of course because it it is all like real footage. Uh, it just really shows like real proper genuine grief where you would have like parents that just they just can't believe that the kid 
is is dead. But even in like the other quieter moments or the other like the de- not necessarily downtime for, mm. for like or let's just say for lack of a better word downtime where it's just like other characters whether it's I'll like, say more like and breathing space. yeah like in the breathing space and then you just hear a bomb go off yeah. Or like someone's walking down, or they're just walking through the halls of the hospital, and then you see sparks fly up and a loud bang yeah, because just, another bomb just dust. like yeah, dust flies up. It's just it, it's unimaginable. Unimaginable. Mm. It's strange. It's it's enduring to sort of see them sort of uphold this domesticity with all the chaos around them, with all the like gunshots in the background, and even mm. like there was that uh, one part where they're like painting a bus. There's there's sort of yeah, there's, even... there's sprinkles of hope around mm. there, and I think that's that's personified with Sama herself. Yeah, in that she's like hope for the future. Oh, yeah. And then there's that other that other little boy, like their family friends. They ask, I think Ward asked the little boy, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" She, he's like, "I want to be an architect so I can rebuild Aleppo." Mm. Like there's all and because yeah, there's all these people that like are fleeing, but like yeah. all these people that want to stay. But, and it, it also like a thing that the, the, there's that that scene, that really tense scene with the. Uh, cesarean uh, operation where the, yeah. the child looks like when they pull out um, the kid out of the womb looks like the kid's dead and they're like after like two minutes the kid actually you know comes alive yeah. or it manages just to be a, a revived sort of this uh, sort of this symbolic gesture of, of sort of like hope prevailing in the end yeah because um, the kid looked dead I thought like yeah. it's a lost cause but um, absolutely yeah they managed to revive the kid which is great it's yeah, it's a really incredible film. It'll be interesting to see if it actually wins the Oscar this one, because I'd, I haven't seen the others, but I'd, I'd I'd probably want it to win. I think American Factory is definitely the front runner, and Honeyland, which is the only other one I've seen, is mm. great. I mean, Apollo Eleven not getting nominated is pretty ridiculous, which was my favorite documentary of last year. But Force Armor, this film, it's definitely worthy of it, and it's a really really powerful film, and it's out in cinemas on February sixth. Um, again, this will be in limited release, so check your local cinemas to see if this is playing. But uh, just uh, be be wary; you're going to see yeah. some really confronting stuff. But yeah. it's worth watching, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And the next, on a much more lighter note, uh, we're going to the Peanut Butter Falcon. <laughs> okay, so the Peanut Butter Falcon. This was actually one of the biggest and like biggest like sleep i don't know if it was a sleeper hit but it was one of like the biggest like american independent films of last year Mm. and it very much is like this sort of sundance like road trip feel good kind of film but it actually it does it well it does it Mm. well it's unlike something that you see and you just like you see something from sundance and it's american indie road trip and you just groan with like just like like, i i know the routine Like that sort of stuff, but like it does follow it does follow very similar beats, but like it's it, it it has a lot of heart to it. So this film, The Peanut Butter Falcon, follows this guy named Zach, played by Zach Zach Gottsagen. Uh, I hope I pronounced that char- that the actor's name right. Um, he has Down syndrome, and he is only twenty three, but because like the state is really like really underfunded and just cannot supply him with like the care and like Mm. that he needs he lives in a nursing home oh wow he lives in a nursing home where his roommate funnily enough is bruce dern in a really great cameo um and uh dakota johnson plays like his carer and like he's obsessed with this wrestler named uh, saltwater redneck he's i he's like this this 80s this this wrestler from the 80s and 90s called uh yeah what is it? Saltwater, saltwater, redneck. saltwater redneck, who's played by Thomas Hayden Church in the film, and like you know, he just watches this tape of his wrestling over and over, and he wants to become a wrestler like really badly, but like 
he, you know, he's not getting the care he deserves. Like he wants to leave this nursing home. Uh, one night he breaks out of the nursing home and uh, in his escape, he jumps into the boat of a, God, I can't remember the character's name. So this guy who's kind of a criminal himself, he's like, uh, he steals he steals a boat. He lights like their crab nets on fire. Yeah. Uh, this guy's name is Tyler. He's played by Shia LaBeouf in the film. So you basically have these two guys running away. This really, this odd duo, like, mm. run, ru- like running away from their own problems together. And this is the road trip film that we've got. And so, and then Zach is saying like, oh, can you take me to... I can't remember where, but he take me to Saltwater Redneck's place so I can learn to become a wrestler. Yeah. So that's basic. That basic conceit of this film, and it's really sweet, as you'd imagine. It sounds very charming, just like it's, the whole it is, setup. It, it doesn't is charming. Sound like two wannabe musicians go on a road trip or across the country. Kind of. Like this sounds like. It sounds almost like something quirky. Uh, like elements of something that maybe like Jamush might have done. Like I'm thinking, yeah. like down by law. Well, they're, they're uh, saying that like the this criminal. Is ver- it's very much, very, very loosely inspired by you know like uh, Huck Finn and uh, Tom Sawyer. Oh like, yeah, that novel. That they, they even name yeah. drop. They they name drop Mark Twain at one point in the film too. Mm. And yeah, it's just really, really sweet. I mean, it's it it's interest. I wish that um I wish I liked it a lot more than I did though. It, it's heart is certainly in the right place, and for the most part, the way that the film depicts the the lived experience of being of of the disabil- of disabilities and mm. living with that is actually pretty goddamn respectful and really good. I just wish that when Dakota Johnson kind of enters back into the picture at the beginning of the third act and like kind of joins them on this like trip with each other, mm. and uh, her and Shia LaBeouf form a very very unnecessary romance, which kind of hijacks the whole film and like. The, the Zach basically takes a back seat for the rest mm. of the film. I was really annoyed at that, but and there's also just a few weird things of like um it, it's it is uplifting Zach and like meant to be uplifting for people with doubt like with Down syndrome and other disabilities. But there are also just moments where like he's kind of humiliated or like is is presented in a humiliating light Won't for like be like, like making the first, him the butt of the joke. Or- not really. It's just like the first like thirty minutes of the film. He's basically in his underwear. Mm. So it's just I think they could have done more about that and like it's the- yeah. Do you think that they were just maybe trying to make it I don't know quirky and weird or something? Yeah, it's just it, it's like yeah. I'm, I'm not I'm not sure if they were like if they were intentionally trying to make it like make fun of the character, but they were just sort of like maybe trying to capture. Yeah, I don't think a, I don't think they were trying to. Because a lot of these like uh, these, I think it's just yeah these like um sort of road trippy films that you they usually have a very like fun bubbly tone yeah unfortunately the film does fall into those like cliches like it's very much i just wish this wasn't cut from the same cloth as those sundance like really Mm. uh, that we the you know those films that we've been talking about but unfortunately it is but it's a it's a sweet film that's very very easy to watch and it's it's in the right place and it's definitely a recommend for me Mm. even though it's it's probably it's probably the second least favorite film of mine that I have to talk about here, but it's the one that like is just very easy to watch and is very very sweet. So yeah, Peanut Butter Falcon is out in limited release right now. It came out on January thirtieth. So again, check your local cinema times to look for this one. And ending today's episode, or well, the last film we have to talk about. Oh my goodness! What was that? It's the color out of space. Color out of space. The new film from Richard Stanley. Uh, d- d- Adapted from the novel by H.P. Lovecraft and oh, starring, short story. yeah, a yeah. short story and starring the one and only Nicolas Cage. Yeah. 
We saw this back at Monsterfest in October. I went to a press screening of this a couple of weeks back. For this, uh, I saw it a second time there. Eric, what from what you remember of seeing this? What did you think of the color out of space? Did it enchant you like it do- it did many of the characters in this film? Well, enchanting is probably one of the least things that it did. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. To be honest, like, Color Red of Space, I didn't really like that much. I don't think it's, like, a bad film. I just think it, it just seems to meander a lot. And um, it's it sort of, it sort of like, confirms sort of this idea that I had of, like, Richard Stanley as, like, a filmmaker where he seems to uh, be more about, like, the appearance of the film, like, a, like the aesthetic qualities of a film and sort of uh, more so than, like, uh, I don't know, trying to tell like a really sharp or efficient story because like the the screenwriting is this is definitely not efficient no. um it it does yeah seem to drag a fair bit um although after already after his long hiatus i do think it's a it's a decent return to form it is a decent return to form but it is as well a film that you can tell is made by a guy that hasn't made a film in over 20 years yeah, a funny thing is that, like... Uh, it kind of feels like a film that should have came out in the 90s, too. It does, and, and sort of, even the way that the film is written, or some of the dialogue, mm. it does sound kind of outdated. Yeah, sort like, of even how the children talk. I'm like yeah, thinking, how the, like... how the children talk. I mean, like, the thing of, like, the kid being, like... Uh, like talking to the, the 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 whole trope of like the kid can talk to the monster or the entity that's yeah. like that it has that trope in it which I thought that trope was practically gone but mm. looks like apparently not. I don't know. It's sort of like I don't know if the excuse is like oh because they're isolated they're a bit quirky, but like just like some of the, the like I don't know the I can't remember the dialogue too much but some of the dialogue that came out of like the the two older kids uh, sound yeah. like some really old stuff like I know that the girl was like um into like a cult. Uh, kind of stuff. Something about that seemed a little like off to me. I'm not sure that's because like it might have been a screenplay that was written ages ago. They never, they yeah. didn't really decide to update it. Yeah, especially because um, the short story was written in like the 1930s too. Wasn't oh yeah, it? yeah. And I think they've they've tried to modernize it a little bit to kind of have like this environmentalist sort of message to it. Yeah, I don't think it really works at all. I don't think it lands but... at all. Uh, or at least it doesn't seem to do anything out of the ordinary than when it comes to that kind of like environmentalist like filmmaking. Um, and then again, like it doesn't seem like that's like a, a huge priority of the film because it seems to be more concerned with making really weird, trippy visuals, like psychedelic uh, visuals yeah. almost or, or surreal at some point. Like, yeah, like there was that kind of... Uh, apparently, like in the, in the book, like this supposed colour out of space is meant to be nothing like any color anyone has ever seen yeah. like it's something that you can do you can describe really lyrically and like you know you can paint a picture with mm. you can paint this picture with words but here it's just kind of like a really bright pink well that's because like in, <laughs> a bright purple i, I should say um i i don't think i ever read i've read some like mm. uh lovecraft like um short series i don't think i ever read the color red of space or at least i can't remember reading it this would have been like years ago when i was like early high school but um Something like that that worked well with H.P. Lovecraft is that he was like with his cosmic horror, he would do a lot of when he would do descriptions of of entities, he would never there would be very vague, uh, there would be very vague descriptions, but the oh, okay. language would be very strong. So mm. like even with like like when he would like with the color out of space, like him describing it, um, 
him describing it as like no color that's never been seen before. The 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 idea he's trying to bring up is like it's something that's so weird and alien that you can't like a human brain can't comprehend it. Um, which is the film seems to sort of not really give a shit about that because it just shows everything, mm. or at least it seems to sort of forget that idea. It's sort of like. When the when the color is in the will at first, it seems to sort of hold that a bit more, and with with trying to restrain showing it. But once it like once it comes to like the the last act, and so that's when it sort of looks like uh, what was that film? Uh, like it was like Natalie Portman was like a scientist. annihilation. Annihilation. This kinda is kind of like, like annihilation. It's kind of like yeah. annihilation in reverse. This film instead yeah. of the instead of the characters going into the alien environment, it's the alien environment coming to them. Yeah. Or the alien environment just growing from its like start point. Like I kind of thought that like especially like when once this alien like this alien meteor like lands like and then all these weird plants and things start to grow. I thought it would kind of be I can't remember what the film was, but it would like it would be kind of like curing the environment. Like I don't I I just had the feeling that it would kind of be like it would be creating a new ecosystem and like you know it would be much more sustainable and like it would be better than the one that came beforehand. But it didn't really do that. I could have yeah. used more Tommy Chong in this movie that's, too. That's 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 where like that sort of environmentalist sort of theme was sort of added on because that mm. wouldn't have been that wouldn't have uh, been I don't yeah. think that would have been present in Be- the original because short story. Can you remember if the the hydrologist character was in there? Who weirdly the film is kind of told through, which I thought was there, a strange choice. I don't know if there was a hydrologist or whatever. Um, like usually they're just like detectives in, yeah, in stuff okay. like this. Yeah. Um, I just realized this would make a great double feature with um, Gore Verbinski's A Cure for Wellness in the, um, it, it would be the uh, films that make you paranoid about drinking water uh, <laughs> double feature. What, maybe maybe slap on, um, what, uh, what was it, Dr. Strangelove as well? Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> true, true, true. Make a night out of that, yeah. I don't know. It's a it's a weird one. Color out of space. Like d- d- by design, it's a weird one. By design, it's weird. The the director's pretty quirky, which I yeah. like. There's some um, good. There's some good creature effects in here. Yeah, there's some, th- really there's some good, good creature effects. Nicholas Cage milks an alpaca, which might be his greatest contribution to cinema. <laughs> he does a lot of acting with his hands. I mean, I like I like seeing like Nicholas Cage just act, just play a weirdo for as a yeah. character, but. It, my intellectually abusive father. I just, I just get annoyed when um, Nicolas Cage seems to be the best film thing in the film, which makes me yeah. think like, oh, they're just exploiting this, uh, this uh, like Nicolas Cage for his like notoriety for for being like mm. having these really weird performances. But, but then there's there's like a twenty minute stretch where Nicolas Cage is in the film because his wife accidentally cuts her finger off, like oh, because yeah. of because of the craziness that's like in the that's air that's gone airborne at this point, mm. and like he has to take her to the hospital and he's like out of the movie for like twenty minutes. Bad call. Mm. I don't, I don't know. Uh, it sort of it reminds me a bit of like. Like even something like Mandy as well. I think I mentioned when we were talking about um, the color out of space, where it's, uh, it's it seems to be like the shining element of the film is like really Nicolas Cage, and the other st- stuff just seems like kind of maybe like meanderings. Yeah. I mean, the, both films seem to sort of uh, now that I think about it, they they sort of seem a lot more similar, just because like both films seem like they could be cut drastically shorter. Yeah. Um, they they Ooh. just seem to meander a lot and sort of have very weird dialogue. 
there's there's sort of like they they like uh in, in a sense sort of seem like weird uh director fever dreams almost how to describe them just because of how bizarre they they become it's almost like the directors they seem most stable at the beginning and then they just just go nuts at the end <laughs> with the direction does the novel do that though what's this the, the, the short story that? yeah all the short story um, yeah it would get it would up the ante with the crazy, but as I said, like it just it'd, like a uh, H.P. Loves Lovecraft writing would sort of maintain this mystery. It would okay. always have this mystery. It would, it, would ne- it never really reveals its hand. It would build up and things would get more crazy. But when that happens, it would sort of parallel with the characters becoming more crazy as well, and sort of question whether or not it might be a psychological uh, phenomena or if it's like a genuine con- they made contact with aliens, um, etc. And Colorado Space is in cinemas in again, I think in limited release from February sixth. So if if this sounds like your kind of thing, like because I thought it was perfect for Monster Fest. Yeah, it it's absolutely good for Monster worked. Fest. I mean, it had it had some like some things that you'd expect in a Monster Fest film where uh, Nicolas Cage is, like shooting up the weird monster uh, alpacas, like the crazy Nick Cage moments. Just. That seems like something that you want to see in your mm. monster. Fest and films. also H.P. Lovecraft and Richard yeah, Stanley as well. Visuals. Richard Stanley, a yeah. renowned, well, at least a, was a renowned genre filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. Like I thought that would have been a perfect midnight showing, but it's kind of a bit too. It's a bit. It's just a, it just drags a little bit too much in the beginning. Mm. I should also mention as well. Also, just before we wrap up in this, um, Colin Stetson's score for this film, I think, is freaking great. I can't remember it, unfortunately, but I'd assume that it would would have worked, I guess. Yeah, very very much fits the mold that that cosmic mm. horror sort of mold. Because I can't remember the, the 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 music being like not working. Because I'd probably remember if it if it, if it wasn't working. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's actually like kind of like Ma- Mandy. I think it's also like a decent mood piece before it gets absolutely really crazy. It's definitely not as good of mood piece as like the first half of Mandy, but mm. yeah. Anyway, that's Colour Out of Space. And before we wrap up, Eric, um, as, we, as we said at the top of the show, 2019 was a really good fil- a year for film. Mm. What were some of your favourites from last year? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'd probably want to start off like Dragged Across Concrete. I don't know if I actually mentioned that in any of the p- previous episodes. I don't think you have. I don't think no. I have. But then like that's many would consider that to be a 2018 film but i i saw that last year yeah well, many just, people it, it got many of my friends released last year yeah many of my yes i'm i'm going with it as a 2019 yeah. film it did the festival circuit in 2018 yeah. and got released last year so i mean yeah. they showed it at monster fest last year in 2018 uh, 2018 yeah. yeah we saw we yeah we saw the house that jack built instead of dragged across concrete we made the wrong i i, I don't i don't reg- i don't regret that decision i, I do. think i mean I think they're both great films. So you're sort of like, you know, you're either picking two poisons or uh, or, or two different uh, beers of, of, of same quality. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Dragged Across Concrete, I liked a lot. It was it was like a sort of like a similar to Cell Block... Um, Brawl and Cell Block Brawl and Cell Block, Block 99. Uh, where where it's sort of like a like a homage film in a sense, like an exploitation homage. Although this is a bit more like a like a hard boiled sort of detective film, but it seems to be a a lot more on the 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 hard boiled end than it being more. Oh, maybe maybe not so. It seems it seems it's exploitative, but not not so much in an obvious 
sense, I'd say. Um, okay, is it like because from what from what I've what I've, I've actually seen a, a S Craig Zala film yet, but from the looks of things, or is that his name? Yeah, yeah. But from the looks of things, he's kind of like a genre filmmaker with an art house sensibility. Yeah, yeah. That's that's uh, I think that's a good way of describing because the way that his films are shot is, is is his films. I think they look great, um, and uh, a lot of the compositions in 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 Drive the Cross Concrete are great. Where they where they would use a weird angle to sort of distort the position of like all the objects. Like, um, I think you could even see it like in the posters as well, where you sort of have like the scene of a shootout and, uh, with all like the, the, with all the bodies all over the place and sort of like the, the characters like moving around okay. doing stuff. And it's well paced. Cause I believe this film is like two hours and 40 oh, minutes yeah, long. I yeah. think, I think it's yeah very well uh, paced. Otherwise, like it couldn't, it shouldn't be as long as it is because it's, it's almost like two hours and 40 minutes. Um, yeah, and as I said, that's that's where it seems to be more of like that sort of traditional, uh, hard-boiled, uh, like sort of seventies thriller where it really sort of takes its time. Something like um, like Hannigan maybe, uh, although it's got like sort of uh, Zala's like weird dark humor, uh, where like a lot of the characters I'd, I'd describe it as I wouldn't say that they're like amoral. Uh, per se, but they sort of they sort of work off their own weird sort of subjective morality okay. systems. They're, they're, none of them are sort of like a, a good, nor they're like completely terrible. So, so it wasn't stunt casting getting two noted conservatives, Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn. Well, yeah, well, they they sort they're cast in a light where they 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 hold more conservative views. Although you could sort of sympathise with them because uh, in in a sense where. Um, Mel Gibson's like uh, living scenario is sort of like worsening. He's laid off his job, and his like wife has a health problem. But is but uh, it's 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 interesting to sort of like examine his motivations because you could you could see it as him sort of wanting like he might be using his 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 domestic situation as being like an excuse for him to get more money or or um, just or to sort of follow through with like this crime. Because he might be feeling like impotent in a sense that his badge is stripped off him, like almost as if it was like castrated or something like that. That and also they like a paranoia springing forth from they they live in I think what is predominantly uh, an ethnically black neighborhood and and sort of the family being a little bit like racist, like fearing that something that that something might terrible might happen to them because they're 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 the ethnic minority in that uh, area. Uh, although uh, with Vince Vaughn, his uh, his uh, motives aren't as well developed as like uh, Mel Gibson's, but he just seems to sort of tag along because he's, he's a good friend of uh, Gibson, um, and he sort of doesn't like that his his badge is stripped away, and uh, wants to help his his friend out, and sort of I guess it gives him an opportunity where he could maybe like shine in a sense. Mm. Well, one of the one of the big uh, things that I was that that kept me from seeing this film is the runtime. But now that you've sung it with pretty high praise, and then also you said that it actually is pretty well paced, I might be mm. more eager to check this one out now. Oh well, I think it's I think it's very well paced. Like, I don't know, maybe maybe it could be wrong, but I, but with some of these other films, I was complaining about the, the, them being too yeah. long. <laughs> so yeah, you could definitely take that as being high praise from me. Yeah, what else did you like? Another one. What was another um, one that you really loved? There was a there was a uh, Pedro Costa film. I think it was for Varela Vitalina, um, which is uh, which is about a, a woman 
grieving from the loss of her husband. Uh, I think she would. She flew over to Portugal, and then she ends up flying back, and she's sort of. Uh, this is when her grieving story sort of starts, returns to um, Cape Green. Uh, I think it was Cape Green. It was uh, it was it was an island that was off off uh, West Africa, Northwest Africa. Uh, that film I liked uh, quite a bit because, uh, well, I like uh, Pedro Costa's films in general. The way that he sort of deals with these these sort of uh, these uh, sort of impoverished uh, characters and sort of their like domestic demosticity. I can't even pronounce anything. Demosticity and uh, sort of the way that he sort of captures um, their environment. He sort of, he sort of uh, like a Dostoevsky book sort of uh, captures the uh, sort of the anxiety in the environment. Like a lot of the, um, the sets, uh, of uh, the film look very harsh. Uh, there's like a harsh contrast between like like things that are lit and that aren't lit. A lot of the time, it sort of seems like a snipping of of uh, of, of of different scenes put together to sort of make a bigger picture of um, of this this area that seems like very crime ridden and sort of dangerous to live in. And and, and it seems. Uh, sort of seems to hold like a weird like hopelessness that you'd see in like a Bellatar film or like the Turin horse because there's a uh, there's a character that um, uh, Costa uses in quite a few of his films this guy's a, a, a priest um, a blind priest although he's sort of um, it's it's weird because uh, uh, Varela goes to see him um in, in an empty church and, and he sort of like talks about how everyone seemed to seem to have like sort of lost their hope like some, their situation is like so like hopeless that it doesn't seem like there is any point to sort of care about anything yeah I can't I can't remember too much from the film but I can remember liking it a lot when watching it and it's sort of is an evolution from from Costa's filmmaking it's, it seems to be a, a good step forward yeah, just looking at because I actually haven't heard. Uh, well, I've heard of Pedro Costa before, but just looking through through his filmography, I haven't actually seen any of these films or really mm. heard of many of them. Like Horse Money might be the only one I think I've heard of, but yeah. even then, that would be like in passing or like you know just in on a list somewhere. It, I think um, it's interesting because uh, Costa, he's like uh, he started off making films that were in Portugal. And then slowly, I think his films ended up taking place in other locations. They they sort of seem to to shift, but he seemed to always like have like a focus on sort of like characters that sort of live in a very dire sort of um, uh, living situation. Um, just like this this woman grieving, uh, she's sort of like living on her low uh, on her lonesome. Um, she she seems to live in a very dangerous area as well, and she sort yeah. of she seems very bitter to, to her husband because he went off to, to work and then come back and give them money. Or she expected him to give, uh, the husband to give, uh, her Varela money while she was uh, back at home. So is he sort of kind of like, would you categorize maybe him as like a sort of a semi site, a social realist filmmaker or not? I'd probably say definitely a social realist filmmaker. He seems to have a, like a heavy concern about sort of like people from the lower class, and sort of their struggles, and uh, really bringing that to light. 
So we've got we've got dragged across concrete and Vitalina Valera. Yeah, I think it's Varela Vitalina. Varela Vitalina. There we Vitalina Varela. Vitalina Varela. Yeah. There we go. Vitalina Varela and dragged across concrete are two of Eric's number one films. Mm. You should see that came out from 2019. And you know what? That's the end of our show for this week. Mm. For this week. I don't know when we're going to do this, but ABMP in 2020 and in this new decade, we'll be back a lot more often. We'll be a much more frequent podcast. We'll be a much more consistent podcast in this new decade and in this new year. Mm. Eric, Eric's availability pending. Yeah, well, like, I don't know. Like last year, it could be pretty busy this year, so it might be a bit difficult to figure out when I could make an episode or not. But uh, when I can, of, mm. of course, I'd be more than happy to come around mm. and record. But the plan is to do a lot more episodes like this in this sort of setting where it's just mm. a few movies that are, you know, newer releases, films that are about to come out or have just come out, and we just review them like a regular movie show would do. We're slowly developing a proper format. Exactly. <laughs> and they're finally reining us in. Mm. But yeah, that's been our show this week, guys. And if you've enjoyed this, you can follow us on SoundCloud and iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify. Yes, another Bunny Movie podcast is now available on Spotify. So go subscribe to us over there. You can also like our Facebook page, which at the moment we have a competition with the Fantastic Film Festival of Australia. Please go back and listen to the episode I did with Hudson Sawada, the program director and artistic and artistic vision behind Fantastic Film Festival of Australia and head to our Facebook page where we currently have a competition where you can win two tickets to the Fantastic Film Festival of Australia. As it's a Melbourne and Sydney event only, the competition is only open to Victorian and New South Wales residents. That competition closes midnight, Sunday, the 9th of February. So please get your entries into that. You can also follow us on Twitter at AB Movie Podcast and follow us on Instagram at Another Bloody Movie Pod. We talked about the true history of the Kelly Gang earlier this week. Oh, earlier this week, earlier this yeah. episode. <laughs> it feels It's only Tuesday. It feels like it's been a week already. But I have a full written review over on moviebabblereviews.com all on the true history of the Kelly Gang. 1,300 words explaining as to why that film I think is great. If you didn't get enough of it here on this episode, go over and read that over at moviebabblereviews.com. Eric, do you want to plug your letterbox? Um, I would plug my letterbox. You, you never know it, though. You know never the, know it. I don't, I don't... I think it's like... When you put over the dash where you find like the proper usernames, I think it's <laughs> it might be Mondo Man or Mr. Pickles. I think. Okay, search for you one of those. You, you shouldn't search for what the the name is because it's just a bunch of nonsense characters. Yeah. Right. Search so, so, <laughs> search for one of those then, uh, or you can search for me at letterbox.com forward slash Sean Coates. And if you see a really stupid comment on one of my reviews, that'll be Eric. Yeah. So just follow that one. <laughs> All right, thanks very much for listening, guys. Uh, tune in later this week when I will have a special episode with a very, very special guest, and we will be doing predictions for the 2020 Academy Awards. So stay tuned for that. Thanks once again for Eric for coming on the show. No problems, it's been and, a pleasure. And thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>